Good morning. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It's so nice to see so many pops of green uh, this morning. This morning we are continuing our Lenten sermon series, The Seven Essential Questions, exploring seven of the many questions that Jesus asked over the course of his ministry, modeling the wondering, the thinking, the helping that helps us draw closer to God. Throughout scripture, we encounter a variety of healing stories in which Jesus asks some similar questions. Do you want to be made well? What is it that you want for me to do for you? This morning, we will encounter a text that asks the latter. So listen now for a word from the Lord from the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The man shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he shouted even more loudly. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man be brought to him. And when the man came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? The man said, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said, Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately the man regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, praised God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add insight and understanding into God's holy word this day. This week a friend of mine reminded me of one of my family's more infamous stories. It happened a few Christmases ago when we had all gathered at my grandmother's house outside of Philadelphia. It was a large, chaotic gathering that was typical of Christmas at my grandmother's. Those who were there included my parents, my sister Nancy, my aunt and uncle, and several layers of cousins. In total, we number more than 30 people at Christmas. We sometimes joke that if you are a significant other or a new spouse at the Johnson family Christmas, it's possible that you might not get acknowledged, at least not for a while anyway. It's more likely that someone will say, welcome, and hand you a dish towel or an oven mitt or a potholder and expect you to join in the work. Despite the crowd and the chaos, which we always complain about, but secretly really love, We were enjoying one another's company and having a wonderful time. That is until the day after Christmas. With 30 people, everybody starts to go a little stir-crazy in the house, and so we decided to venture out to many of the after-Christmas sales at the mall, including the home furnishing store Crate and Barrel. My mother and I love the Crate and Barrel after Christmas store. You can get many wonderful Christmas ornaments, half a price. (laughs) We love it. But because there were so many of us, we took several cars. So we all piled in and spent a few hours shopping and looking, and after a while everybody was pretty worn out, so we piled back in the cars and went home for a leisurely lunch. We sat around the table enjoying one another's company, and after about an hour, my aunt looks up and says, where's Nancy? 
Everyone looks around the table. My sister is not at the table. Did she go upstairs? Someone asked. The upstairs is empty. Was she in your car? No. No. I thought she was in your car. No. My sister is nowhere to be found. In the chaos and exuberance of being together, we left my adult sister at the crate and barrel store. <laughs> Not only did we leave her at the store, but we came home, ate lunch for an hour, and never even noticed. Somebody in the earlier service said, why didn't she use her cell phone? This was the days a couple years ago where everybody had a cell phone, but nobody was keeping them quite so close. So as soon as we realized our mistake, my dad gets back in the car, drives back out to the crate and barrel, picks her up. To say she was mad was an understatement. <laughs> my sister was in her 30s, and she literally refused to speak to anyone in the house for several days. <laughs> I texted her this week to let her know I was telling the story and I was secretly worried she was still mad. <laughs> At some point in our lives, I think all of us have felt invisible. No matter how many people might be gathered around us, we have all had the sense that no one sees us. And that's exactly what's happening in our scripture passage this morning. In our passage from the Gospel of Luke, we find a man, though he is surrounded by people, is absolutely invisible. The writer of Luke's Gospel describes him as the blind beggar. The man isn't even given the dignity of a name. Instead, he's only given a location, the roadside. He is the blind beggar by the roadside. Presumably, this man sits beside the road because the closer he is to the road or to the stoplight or to the interstate, the more likely he has a chance of being seen by someone who is walking or driving by. And if he catches the glance of someone, perhaps they will notice him and offer him help and compassion. But the irony of the text, of course, is not only is this man physically blind, but at a busy intersection, he is completely unseen. He's walked around, covered up, trampled upon. Even when he cries out, learning from the crowd that Jesus is coming near, those who are passing by in front of him tell him, be quiet. Without physical sight, this man is also rendered physically, emotionally, and spiritually invisible to everyone around him. Everyone, that is, except for Jesus. Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and he hears this man's cries for mercy. And Jesus stops. And he stops, and he sees him. And not only does he see the man in his pain where he is, but he heals his sight and then restores him back to life in the community. This is something that Jesus was constantly doing offering physical healing to those who had a stigmatizing illness or condition that isolated them from common life. In the ancient world, living with a physical or intellectual disability, much like today, can be incredibly lonely. And in Jesus' day, disabilities and illnesses were often believed to be the result of one's sinfulness. 
And therefore, those who were sick or had a special need were also isolated and marginalized spiritually by the wider community. And so time and time again, Jesus reaches out. He sees people. He touches them. He heals them. People whom society has forgotten. And so, on the one hand, this story is very simple. It's a story of physical healing in the most literal sense. A man who is blind, who has lost his sight, miraculously is able to see again. I think that's important. It reminds us that the salvation of God is found in the flesh and bone realities of life here and now. I think sometimes that scares us. It scares us to ask for that or to hope for that. Because it's hard not to hear or see a miracle without wanting one of your own. But we embody that hope each week in worship. That happens through the prayers of the people. The pastor comes and stands behind this table and we lift prayers for ourselves, for those that we love. Prayers for those whose bodies are failing, whose hearts are broken. Prayers for those who don't have food or shelter. Prayers for those whose lives are hurting from tornadoes or floods. Each and every Sunday, we place the real, physical, material needs of our lives and of the world before God, trusting that we believe in a God who sees and hears us and responds to our physical lives with mercy and compassion. And so, on the one hand, this is a story a physical healing that is possible through the mercy of God. And on the other hand, I think this is also a story about the wider reach of God's mercy that heals not just bodies, but also spirits. Think about it for a minute. Think about how this story of Jesus' encounter with the blind man unfolds. Beyond his physical blindness, in a moment of deep personal darkness and communal isolation, a man who can no longer see the way in front of him clearly cries out to be seen and healed by God. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's as much a theological confession as it is a practical request. That's how we begin every Lent. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Jesus not only stops where he's going and hears the man's cries for help, but he draws near in order to see him, to truly see him, and to respond with mercy and compassion, salvation, and deliverance. You hear it in the text. Your faith has made you well. Community, of course, those walking back and forth who trample around him and over him, meet this man's darkness, his weakness, his moment of need by judgment and by scorn. Jesus sees him. He acknowledges his presence. He cares for his deepest need. And in doing so, not only restores his sight, but places him back on a path toward life. I think this is a story about mercy that heals bodies. I think it's also a story about the mercy of God that heals spirits.
Anne Lamott, who is one of my favorite writers and speakers, has a little book called Alleluia Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy. She writes about the mercy that heals spirits this way. Mercy, she says, is compassion, it's empathy, it's a heart for somebody else's troubles. Mercy is radical kindness. Mercy, she says, right, means offering and being offered aid in a desperate time of need. Mercy is usually not deserved. It involves absolving the unsolvable, forgiving the unforgivable. Mercy brings to us the miracle of an apology and the miracle of hearing in return, you are forgiven. Father Ed Dowling is another one of my favorites, and he puts it this way. He says, sometimes heaven is just a new pair of glasses. We put them on and we see this awful person, sometimes even ourselves, a bit more gently, with a bit more compassion and a bit more mercy. And we are blessed in return. God's mercy extended toward us. And mercy extended toward others through radical kindness buys us a shot at a warm and generous heart. And I can't help but wonder in this life if that isn't the greatest prize of all. I wonder if you have ever experienced the kind of mercy that heals your spirit. In a moment of darkness in which you felt like no one saw you. Someone reached out their hand and introduced themselves at a gathering. In a time of isolation or loneliness, someone picked up the phone and asked how you were doing. In a face of weakness or a mistake, a missed appointment, an unkind word, you were met not with judgment or with scorn, but with forgiveness, with mercy. Jesus was constantly embodying the mercy of God. Not just to the blind beggar on the side of the road, but to others. Just prior to our passage, he extends mercy to a man who's crying in the temple. Immediately after, Jesus will meet that famous chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. No one wants to come to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus is burdened by his position, by the way he acquires his wealth. And Jesus stops. He sees and acknowledges and cares for Zacchaeus. He joins him for dinner at his house, showing him mercy. Even on the cross where we are headed in just a few short weeks, Jesus embodies mercy to those who continue to shout for his death. Father, forgive them, he says, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but when I think about mercy that heals my spirit, I cannot help but think about what is arguably one of the most famous hymns in history, Amazing Grace. Many of you might know that the hymn's author is a man by the name of John Newton. The legend goes that Newton was the captain of an English slave ship. Tortured by the slave trade he was serving, he discovered Thomas Akempis's work, The Imitation of Christ. You don't know what I would commend it to you. And in the pages of that book, Newton experienced the grace and mercy of God that said he was loved and claimed, forgiven and healed, and that there was nothing in his life he could do, no matter how awful, that would ever change God's love for him. 
And so Newton gave his life to Christ, and he left the slave trade, and he became an Anglican priest. Some parts of the legend say that Newton actually composed the hymn on a dark and stormy night on the board of the slave ship when he experienced a moment of conversion. It's a great story. It's likely not true. However, what is true is that having entered the priesthood, that Newton would lead a small weekly worship service for which he composed most of the hymns. Amazing Grace was likely written for one of those services. It's much less dramatic than him in a conversion moment aboard a ship in a storm. But I have to believe that the grace that Newton writes about is indeed the mercy and grace that changed his life and healed his soul. How many among us, first-time churchgoers or churchgoers our whole lives, don't know the words to that hymn? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The mercy of God is always about seeing. About seeing as God sees us. And in doing so, helping us to see again. God's mercy forgives us, heals us, and sets us free. Several years ago, I was reminded of a story of what this looks like. A story of extraordinary mercy mediated by another in the life of a woman named Shannon Etheridge. It happened when Shannon was 16 years old. She was driving to school, as she did every morning, except for this morning she realized that she forgot to put on her lipstick. And so, as many of us have often done, she didn't think too much about it, she pulled down the visor and quickly used the mirror to apply some lipstick and flipped it back up. But as she did, Shannon heard a thump and she felt her car jolt forward. She hoped to God it was just a piece of trash that had blown into the road, or maybe a squirrel, an animal. But to her horror, when she looked in the rearview mirror, she saw a person lying face down on the street and a crumpled bicycle next to her. So Shannon rushed out of her car to see what she could do. The woman was still breathing, and Shannon called 911, and she stayed with her until help arrived. The woman's name was Marjorie. And Marjorie died at the hospital later that day. Marjorie had a husband whose name was Gary. And Gary found Shannon's name and had a friend call her and say, Shannon, Gary is the husband of the woman you hit this week, and he would like to talk to you. And he'd really like to do so before the funeral. Could you come to the house tomorrow night? And Shannon said, I desperately did not want to go. I was terrified. I knew that this thing I had done was a terrible wrong that I could not fix. But it was horrible. But how could I say no to such a request? So Shannon went over to the house and someone let her in. And she walked through the entryway and she saw Gary standing in the kitchen. And she said, I walked toward this man, scared to death. But before I could say a word, he wrapped me in his arms and I began to sob. And as he held me tightly, I said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. 
And while my tears were soaking his shoulder, his tears were falling in my hair. And Gary said, Marjorie loved God. She lived every day as if it was her last. Shannon, you cannot let this moment ruin your life. I'm passing Marjorie's legacy on to you. And I want you to use your life for good. Several weeks later, a lawyer called Gary and said that he could sue Shannon's parents for more money than the insurance company was going to pay. But he said no. And when the DA planned on pressing charges on involuntary manslaughter against Shannon, Gary asked that the charges be dropped. As a recipient of the gift of mercy, Shannon said, my life slowly shifted from the blinding darkness of being responsible for somebody else's death to the freedom and privilege of living out the legacy of another person's life. That kind of grace changed my life forever. When I hear a story like that, I have to admit it is hard for me to imagine extending that kind of grace and mercy. Although I'd like to be that kind of person. A person who turns pain into hope and healing. The point of the story is this. Mercy is healing both for the giver and for the receiver. Whether there's mercy experienced on a slave ship through the amazing grace of God, or mercy mediated in the forgiveness and compassion of another person, it brings healing and wholeness to our lives. Like it did for a blind man, who in his pain is seen and acknowledged and cared for. The mercy of God can heal our bodies can also heal our spirits. Shannon's story is extraordinary. But for you and me in everyday life, mercy doesn't have to be extraordinary in order for us to know it's healing. Healing mercy can come from the courage to say, I'm sorry, and to receive the forgiveness of another person. Healing mercy can come in the face of a mistake, a missed opportunity, an unkind word, and through the compassion of another person saying, it's okay, I've been there too. Healing mercy can come through the presence and love and care of someone else as we experience a difficult time. At 35, I also believe that our longest lasting relationships are a constant exercise in mercy. At some point, most of us realize that the best of our relationships and our friendships are not based on how wonderful we are, but on somebody else's patience and forgiveness and kindness. Whatever it is our standing with God or with our loved ones or with our family, it's not because we are righteous or smart or super faithful but because someone else has chosen to love us, good parts, 
bad parts, warts and all. I also think we know about the healing power of God's mercy. Because in a world of perfection and judgment and blame, we long for it. And I think we have all experienced just enough of it to know that it can save us. The good news of the gospel is this. In our moments of deepest pain and darkness, the mercy of God sees us and tells us that we are loved and claimed, that our lives matter, and that there is good work for each of us yet to do. In the season of Lent, I wonder how we might see one another as God in Christ sees us, not with judgment or condemnation or fear, but with mercy, with gracious, overflowing, healing mercy. All thanks be to God. Amen.